Let's go ahead and open our Bibles and find the book of Colossians, if you would please. And let's go ahead and stand to our feet out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter number 1. I'll begin reading in, in chapter number 1. Um, I was thinking though, I do have a solution for your building problem. There is a building that has ample space... And um, Brother Travis Peters, I don't think it's going to be in use for the rest of the fall. It's Turner Field. The Braves uh, won't be playing there the rest of the fall. And uh, you can, I don't think the Braves fans appreciate that one. Um, If you haven't been paying attention, they lost to the Phillies. It was terrible. All right, Colossians chapter number 1. Colossians chapter number 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 9. And the Word of God says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who he hath delivered, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Father, I pray that You would help me tonight. Lord, I ask that You would help hide me behind Your cross and fill me with Your Spirit. And Lord, I ask that You would speak to the hearts of men and women tonight. Lord, that we would see You in Your glory. And that we, Father, would respond accordingly. Lord, that we would know you, the power of your resurrection, and the will of your heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Visions of their imminent death flashed across their eyes. In a boat with waves pounding down and rain piercing their skin. They thought this was it. Here they were in a boat with Jesus, but they were gripped with fear, unable to comprehend all of the power that was encompassed in his body. They look only to the wind and waves, and they run to the back of that small wooden vessel, overcome with fear, overcome with the water, and they wake the master with these startling words, Carest thou not that we perish? You know the story well. Jesus 
stands to his feet. Massive contrast between the terror on their faces and the peace and confidence on his. And he steps forward with a few simple words, declares, peace, be still. As the waters go placid, as the rain stops, as the clouds part, and as we hear now just the gentle lapping of water against this small wooden boat, the disciples, no doubt, their jaws have dropped open completely with utter amazement at what has just taken place before their very eyes. And they ask this simple question in Matthew chapter number 8. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? It seems to me that people are still asking that question of Jesus. What manner of man is this? Quite frankly, I believe that to be the most important question that anyone can ask of themselves or of someone else. What manner of man is this? And I would like to preach on that topic tonight. What manner of man is Jesus? If you bring up the name Jesus on a university campus, no doubt you will be greeted with a number of responses, whether it be here at the University of Tennessee or at Georgia Tech or even in Alabama. As some students, you'll interact with them and they will proclaim, yes, I've received the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And they will say, what manner of man is that? That is the Savior God. But many will respond. And they will say that, oh yes, he was a historical figure, but was never the redemption of mankind. In fact, there's been a very interesting movement within the world of academia here in the past, we'll say, 15 years as intellectuals have tried their best to disprove the very existence of Jesus and they have come to the conclusion that it is an impossibility to disprove the fact that there is a historical man by the name of Jesus that was of Nazareth that was crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate. In fact, John Dominic Crossan says this, that Jesus' death by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can ever be. For if no follower of Jesus had written anything for 100 years after his crucifixion, we would still know about him from two authors that were not among his supporters. Their names are Flavius, Flavius Josephus and Cornelius Tacitus. The atheist Gerd Ludman said this, that Jesus, an atheist says this, that Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Another atheist said it this way, that the theory of Jesus' non-existence is now effectively dead as a scholarly question. These men, Steeped in 
intellectualism, steeped in their own philosophy, digging into the records of history, both scriptural history, extra biblical history, even history of the very enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, have come to the conclusion that this man called Jesus, who had a following and a crucifixion and a burial in a garden outside the city walls of Jerusalem was in fact a real man who walked and lived and died and no one is in dispute either that that tomb was empty but still they stand in amazement asking that question but what manner of man was he? Pilate stood and looked Jesus straight in the face and looked unto the multitudes and said, Behold the man! But I asked Pilate, What manner of man? The Pharisees stood by and watched his miracles as he healed the lame. They saw him as he touched the leprous and they were healed. But the Pharisees, instead of calling him their Lord, they said that this man is a wine-bibber and a blasphemer. And the question still remained for them, what manner of man is this? Oh, but Peter looked into the eyes of his Savior and when asked, who do you say that I am? Peter responds with these glorious words. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. With these three men, we find very different outcomes for all three of their lives. These three men, they chose very different responses based on their knowledge of who they believed that Jesus was, what manner of man he truly was. Pilate, his response was this, after looking at Jesus and saying, behold the man, he washes his hands and he simply says, I'm not sure, so I'm going to pretend like I don't have any responsibility in this thing. The Pharisees, they look at Jesus and they reject him altogether. And their response was to live every moment that they might destroy him. Oh, but Peter's response was different. When asked, what manner of man is this? Peter, knowing that he was the Christ, Peter gave all. It was Peter that you find there preaching on that day of Pentecost when 3,000 would be saved. It was Peter there uh, singing the Lord's praises. It was Peter that was hunted down by his detractors. It was Peter that was fearless in the face of adversity. It was Peter that was filled with the Holy Spirit of God and used mightily of God because he knew what manner of man that was, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what manner of man we believe him to be will make all the difference. And now we have our Bibles open to the book of Colossians and we are introduced to another man who had an encounter with Jesus who for many years when asked the question, what manner of man is he, would have said that he's a blasphemer. He's one who claimed to be God and sought his just reward of crucifixion. But then as he found himself on the road to Damascus, he realized what manner of man Jesus really was. And it changed everything. And now as Paul speaks to these here in Corinth, I want you to notice what he says in verse number 10. He urges them that they might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every word, work, every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
And I love how he writes unto the Colossians who no doubt had a love, a fervor, a desire to serve the Lord. He commends them uh, for this. He says in verse number seven, as he also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. They were acquainted with those who are serving alongside for the cause of the, of the gospel. He's commending them for their effort in verse number nine, for this cause we also since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And what was it that Paul desired for those who were seeking to walk worthy that they would understand and that they would never forget why they were walking? It's because he is worthy. He wanted to make sure they understood the answer to that question. What manner of man is this? Why is it that the third and fourth and fifth generation Christians lose their savor for the Lord the way that their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents had it? Oh, because those that are saved gloriously in that way they never forget the, the answer to that question of what manner of man he is. So Paul writes to the Colossians to remind them exactly who Jesus is, the one that they worship. And he says this in verse number 15. He says, concerning Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. I want you to notice, first off, that when we look at what manner of man this is, we need to understand, first and foremost, that Jesus Christ is not just some normal man, but Jesus is, firstly, the God-man. 100% God and 100% man. If you were to ever look and place your eyes upon the substance of God, you would be looking at Jesus, now, you're welcome to disagree with me on this. This is a little bit of Jaredology, what I'm about to tell you. But when the Word of God says that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily and that He is the image of the invisible God, that tells me a few things about the nature of God is that you cannot see God with your eyes. No man hath seen God. The Bible says that God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in, a, in spirit and in truth. You cannot see spirit with your eyes, but you can see Jesus. Now this is where it gets Jaredology-ish. I believe that perhaps, and I could be entirely wrong on this, the only ever time we're ever going to see God is when we see Jesus because he is going to be the visual representation of God. If I could just take your thoughts a little bit further and encourage you to study this out on your own, I personally believe that the only spirit that we will ever feel 
from God is the Holy Spirit, yet you'll never see him. I believe the only authority that we ever feel is the same authority that Christ was under, for he came not to do my will, but the will of the Father. And in this way, we see a unique relationship and manifestation of the Trinity, the Father being the authority of God, the Son being the fullness of that Godhead bodily or visible, and the Spirit being that unction of God that we might function according to his will. When we see Jesus and we wonder what manner of man this is, this is the God man. This is not part God and part man, but he is the fullness of God. He is not made in the image of God as we are. He is not made after the likeness of God, but he is the very substance of God, not a image of over 30 million gods, but instead he is the image of the singular God, the same God that spoke heaven and earth into existence, the same God that commands the legions of angels. When you see him face to face, you are seeing Jesus the God man. Oh, I love the way that it says further in verse number 19, for it pleased the Father. Again, there it is, the authority of God. Who is the one making the decisions within the Godhead? The Father, for it pleased the Father that in Him, who in Jesus, should all fullness dwell. Boy, there are only a few words in the English language that can even come close to describing God. And they are words like this, infinite, everlasting, and fullness. The thing about fullness, that word, is it is so dependent upon the container in which we speak, isn't it? If I were to take this small little bottle of water, you know, they used to give me bottles this size. And then I was preaching too long, so they gave me bottles this size. It was a subliminal message. Whenever we use that term fullness, the fullness is limited to the shape and the size and the volume of the container. There are certain things that you could do to manipulate this with, with temperature. But ultimately, this bottle is only going to contain so much. And, and we'll be able to look at it and we'll say, well, that's, that's full. But when I come to this phrase of verse number 19, for it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell, I realize that God is describing infinite things contained within infinite things, that within an immeasurable container, the Lord Jesus Christ, God is pouring out the fullness of His power. Oh, did the disciples truly grasp the fullness, the power, the infinite, the majesty of what they had when they were following that carpenter from Nazareth? Did they grasp the fact that this is God in flesh, the same one that put them together in their mother's womb and spoke the stars into existence, that in Him that all fullness did dwell? We see in chapter number 2 and verse number 9 another explanation of this. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And once again, we have infinites placed in and poured into the fullness of infinites from eternity. 
eternity to eternity. And there is no word that can describe it. There is no illustration that would accurately convey it. Our God is big. He is mighty. He is holy. He is lofty. He is glorious. And we who belittle him so often as we pray to him and as we think about him. And that's why Jesus says with him, all things are possible. Oh, what manner of man is this? This is the God-man. You see, he's full in, the, full in his knowledge. Pastor Jared, if he's full in his knowledge, are you saying that nothing can be added to it? Yes. Because everything is already contained in it. He is omniscient. Psalm 147 verses 4 and 5 say it this way, that he telleth the number of the stars, he calleth them all by their names. Listen to this, great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. I love when you combine greatness with greatness with infinite. And that is how we discuss our God. It is past our understanding. For he is unsearchable by our knowledge. And this is the one whom we worship. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one, by the way, when it comes to that great commission of his church. That he says, all power... All those are the kinds of words that are embraced by our God. All power is given me in heaven and in earth. And then he gives us that command to go ye into all the world and to preach the gospel. Oh, to teach them, to baptize them, to lead them to me, to teach them all things that I have commanded you. And then I love this glorious truth. He says, and lo, I will be with you Always, that's another God word right there. A word that has no end and is once again infinite in his nature. There is no end to his presence in our life. The disciples amazed at the fact that God, with a few softly spoken words, peace be still, could calm the waves of a sea and stop the rain from the clouds. But for the God-man, for Jesus, it was effortless. If we would see God as He is, it would change the way we respond to Him. For He is uncontainable. Uncontainable. Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 18, says it like this. It says, But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less his house which I have built. And as they look to a temple made with hands, so opposite of these polytheistic religions that, that are, are, are idols fashioned by hands, believing that those gods can, can inhabit this rock or this temple. How different is our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know that he spills out beyond this sanctuary 
sanctuary, out of every window and door, the power of God can pour from this place. Oh, the city of Knoxville could be flooded with the flow of the Holy Spirit. For our God is able. And when we wonder and ask that same question, what manner of man is this? Let's not limit him to the five fingers which were on that nail-pierced hand. But instead, let's remember that that was the same hand which carved out every ocean and sculpted every mountain. It's Jesus. And that's why we worship him. For he is God. I notice secondly in this passage that When we ask that question, what manner of man is this? We see, yes, he is the God-man. But then he's described in verse number 15 as the firstborn of every creature. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. The text goes on, for by him... For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Sometimes when I'm running through this passage with great joy, because quite frankly, it's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I love running to those texts of scripture, which just paint his majesty. And this is one of them. And I stub my toe on verse 15. That might be a funny way of you thinking about it, but it's exactly what happens to me as I read. I'm running through this and I'm seeing glory upon glory, glory upon glory. I'm seeing majesty, I'm seeing wonder, I'm seeing God. Infinite in the heavens from everlasting to everlasting. And I I stub my little toe on the second part of verse 15 with this phrase, the firstborn of every creature. And in my immaturity, I think that if he's always been, then how is he firstborn? Because doesn't that firstborn have to do with a a genesis, with a beginning? I'm not the firstborn. I'm the secondborn. And you all know the saying, save the best for second. Right? We eat dessert second. Right? I'm not the firstborn. And for a long time, I had a difficulty with that. Why does it say that he's the firstborn? For Christ, I know that he was born in the manger, but he was eternally existent in the heavens. We, we see that all throughout Scripture. It's, it's indisputable in the Bible. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. We know that, uh, that, that Christ was, was forever in the heavens, and he, was, he had no beginning whatsoever. So what is this meaning when it says the firstborn? And then it dawned upon me that this is not an expression of his beginning. This is an expression of his birthright. This is an expression of different degrees of things for in the Jewish culture and even in the pagan cultures of that day. The firstborn was the one that received all the rights and privileges given by the father. Oh, when I opened my Bible and I looked to Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 2, it says it like this. It says that, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, listen, 
whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world's dominion over all things. This word, speaking of Christ as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, is not talking about the beginning of Jesus. It's talking about the priority and the inheritance of Jesus from the Father. Oh, and when we come to Revelation chapter number 5, and we read those words sung in verse number 9. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. We often ask ourselves, what is that sealed book in Revelation chapter 5? Sealed with seven seals and written within and without. What is that book? And I personally believe that that's the title deed to all creation. And there's only one that has the authority to inherit it, and it's the firstborn, the Son of God, of Jesus Christ. And when he came to die on the cross, the firstborn, the Son of God, took his place and gained that inheritance by his death on the cross, which is why it is said, For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. What are you trying to say, Pastor Jared? What I'm trying to say is this, is that he is the firstborn of every creature. If I could say it another way, that he is worthy that our God is worthy. What manner of man is this? It's not just, a, it's not just a, an illusionist. It's not a magic show where God's just trying to impress us. Here's what he's trying to show us. The fact that he and he alone is worthy. Oh, besides him, there is none else. There is no other way to glory. There is no other God but God, but, but our Lord. There is no other one that is in his likeness, for he is God, and besides him, there is none else. This firstborn of every creature is an expression of the different degrees in his speaking that he is worthy. As I said from the beginning, how we view him changes how we follow him. And some of us have been content with small, following a small God for far too long. What manner of man is this? This is the God man. What manner of man is this? This is the firstborn of every creature. It's amazing to me that even the man who thought he had the power to release Barabbas or release Jesus is greeted with these words on that platform in John 19. Thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. It would be good, by the way, for us to remember that here in a couple weeks when we go into the election booth. Sorry, I didn't mean to take the political rabbit trail here. But the Lord is on the throne. And we have a responsibility in this nation. And we ought to vote based on that responsibility. And, and if the Lord grants me the privilege, I may say a, a word about that here in the coming days. But I, I want you to know this. That no matter who is in the White House or who the vice president is or who the nominee is or who the congressman is or who the, the Supreme Court is, I want you to know who the king is. 
And his name is Jesus. And if you're wondering what manner of man he is, he is the God man. And he doesn't need Pilate's permission. He doesn't need Biden's permission. He doesn't need Congress to approve it. He doesn't need a Supreme Court ruling. God is the Supreme Court. He is the Supreme King. He is the Supreme Congress. And we need to see him high and lifted up. And may our confidence be in him. He is the God man. He is the the firstborn of every creature. And I want you to be reminded of this as well as we close, that he is the creator of man. In verse number 16, we read this truth that for by him were all things created. All things that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him. And I want you to notice very closely these last three words, and for him. And for him. I'll tell you why so many people are having such a crisis of identity right now. And no, I'm not just talking about what's taking place with transgenderism. I'm not just talking about those that are, are following after this, this, this woke ideology. It's here in the house of God too. Is that our religious formalism you mean here at Valley View? Yeah. Our routines of worship have distracted from the fact that we were not just created to come Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We're not just created for, oh, got to go to revival, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But we were created for Him, for His glory. I could think of nothing more dissatisfying than to spend my entire life pursuing something that I'm not built for. I am not made to be a seamstress. Let me tell you, when I was in high school, I had this rusted out S10 pickup truck, it was a piece of junk. Bought it for 500 bucks, which I thought, man, that's tall cotton for, you know, a teenage boy. Had a little four-cylinder in there. Sounded like an angry bumblebee. <laughs> Grinding gears, manual transmission. Have you ever heard of that? Your manual transmission. That's right. I'm not as young as you thought. <laughs> Clutch. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the synchronizers broke on that one. Third gear. So my dad knew this guy that owned a body shop and that guy offered to, to teach me how to do body work to fix this truck. I was so excited about it. Oh, this could be great. I'm going to be like an artist, you know. So I drive my little truck up there and, and he starts showing me. And uh, I, I, I'll tell you, the greatest thing that came out of that is I learned real quick, I do not ever want to do that for a living. <laughs> I don't want to do it. I'm not built for that. Now, Mr. Rick, 
which was the name of his body shop and his name, coincidentally enough. Mr. Rick's Auto Body. Mr. Rick built for it. He did it and he did it well. He loved it. He had a, a, a couple other guys and, and it was almost like they were excited to be there. Man, I couldn't wait for the lunch break. I mean, for you that have done this before, you basically just sand all day and then you pick Bondo boogers when you get home. You either laugh at you know that's not a joke. That's the truth. I hated it. Oh, I hated it. You know, my favorite part is the fact that it was 30 minutes from my house. And if I left, I had 30 minutes of peace and relaxation before I had to open the door of this truck and <laughs> all day. I want you to know, I was not made for that job. Now, I didn't quit. I did it and was thankful for him. And I got the truck done and I helped him out when he asked politely. <laughs> My point is this, I'm not built for that. There are other people that are, and I am grateful for them. And you, if you're wondering why it's so expensive to get your fender fixed, it's because, trust me, you don't want that job. But there are some people, and this might seem like a silly correlation to you, but what they think is going to give them so much joy, they're not built for and I'm not talking about occupation. I'm speaking about life purpose, why they're breathing air on this earth. Here's why we're here. It's because he's worthy. It's because he created us for his glory. All things were created by him and for him. And there's no surprise to me that suicide rates are skyrocketing and everybody is trying to go to the fullest lengths to, to change their identity and, and change their occupation and, and find some other career and find some other relationship and find some other drug or find some other bottle in order to satisfy themselves because they are chasing something and they are missing what they were built for that we are built for his glory and when you look to Jesus you're not just built to worship in him on Sunday and on Wednesday but every breath may we glorify him every action may it honor him what manner of man is this he is the one that created us and we are made not just by him but for him and for his glory I pray we challenge ourselves with this. Why do we do missions revival? Because he's worthy and we're built for his glory. Why do we gather like this and gather around his word that we might understand who he is and worship him because he's worthy. He is the God man. He is the firstborn of every creature, which is the same reason that the apostle Paul is writing to the Colossians. It was his desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And I'm just preaching to you tonight that we might know what manner of man we worship.